This episode of Gunblog Variety Cast brought to you by LawofSelfDefense.com. Go to LawofSelfDefense.com forward slash variety to learn about your state's self-defense laws. Sign up for one of their online or in-person seminars or buy the book Law of Self-Defense and get 10% off when you use the discount code variety at checkout. That's LawofSelfDefense.com forward slash variety. Sit back, relax, and take a ride with us on the Gunblog Variety Cast, Episode 90. Welcome back to the Gunblog Variety Cast. I'm Sean, and I'm joined as always by Adam. How are you doing, Adam? Oh, it's been a rough month. <laughs> oh, great. So, let's get started with the Tactical Dog and Fitness Report. 26.4 dog walking miles, and I am recovering from exhaustion. It's been long days at work, plus trying to get everything here at home put away in time for my mother-in-law to come visit for Mother's Day. Oh, and the company car's in the shop getting some body work done, and they've rented me this four-wheel drive crew cab Ford F-150. It's like driving down the road in a skyscraper. Body work, huh? I didn't do it. Uh-huh. <laughs> I had nothing to do with it. I wasn't even in the same state at the time. <laughs> uh, well, I walked about 20 minutes home from a mechanic today, but more on that later. Oh, all right. Well, let's uh, get straight to it. It's time for Blue Collar Prepping with that bratty kid sister of the gun blogosphere, Aaron Paulette. Now, Aaron came back from Dragon Leatherworks blog shoot so sick that almost a week later, she's still dragging her behind. She couldn't do a full segment, but she did leave us with this brief message. Come on, every pony! It's time for Blue Collar Prepping with Erin Paulette! Hello, everyone. As you can tell, I sound horrible. I came back from Tennessee with a delightful head cold, and I really can't uh, do a very long segment, but I didn't want to leave Sean completely in the lurch. So I thought I would let everyone know that there is a really cool series of articles about ionizing radiation on the Blue Collar Prepping website. And what it does is it takes a lot of the scary fear and misinformation about radioactivity and puts it in terms people can understand. Because when I was researching it, I thought, hey, there's a lot of information here, but it's not really accessible. I really wish someone would put this in simple terms so people can understand and that's what I ended up doing. So if you're interested in learning more about ionizing radiation and radioactivity and why it isn't really as scary or as deadly as everyone thinks it is, it, it's still to be respected, but it's not the death sentence or magical monster that Hollywood or the news would lead you to think it is. And so I just encourage you to go read it. I think it's one of the best things I've ever written. And we have other great articles on blue collar prepping as well. So please give it a read. And I hope that you find it both entertaining and informative. Thank you, and have a great week. Wow, she sounds terrible. <laughs> she does. She sounds awful, but she soldiered on. Like I told her, she is always a professional. I can always count on Aaron. So thank you very much, Aaron. Even soldiering through even just, oh, sounded awful. 
I was going to go to that blogger shoot, but my eye surgery got kicked back a week, so I couldn't actually go. Yeah. So, oh well. If you'd like to read more from Erin, check out her blog, lurkingrhythmically.blogspot.com. Felons behaving badly. Man arrested after pointing gun out car window at other driver. Those carry permit people. I'm telling you, we finally got it. Road rage, blood in the streets. Happens all the time. York County police arrested and charged a man with carrying a stolen firearm and marijuana earlier this week after a call about someone driving with a gun on Interstate 77. The man was Suspect, 34, of Lowell, North Carolina. He was arrested at Carowinds Boulevard Gas Station at 6.45 p.m. on Tuesday. The arrest occurred after another driver reported Suspect cutting him off on the interstate, then pointing a gun out the window at him, the incident report shows. After Suspect was found in the vehicle matching the license plate and description of what the other driver reported, police also found a Bursa Thunder 9mm pistol, and a clear plastic bag full of marijuana in the glove compartment. The gun's serial number showed it was stolen. Suspect said he was upset with the other driver because he thought the other man was purposely preventing him from merging to other lanes. He had motioned for the other driver to pull over and fight Suspect, but he said he didn't show the gun. When I read these road rage stories, I always think both of them were probably doing something that they shouldn't have been doing. They always say it takes two to tango. Yes. It's hard to get into road rage if you don't sort of help. Now, I mean, I'm not saying that it's totally outside the realm of possibility that the guy was like, dude, cut me off. And like, he never bothered the guy again. The guy was like, because, you know, that does happen. But let me tell you, there was a funny story from my days when I used to work as sort of a like a temp worker at a very large chemical company. There was this guy that worked there and he came to work one day and he started spinning this story about how he got on the highway and he accidentally cut somebody off. And this guy got mad at him and cut him off back. And the two of them were cutting each other off and shaking their fists at each other and making nasty gestures at each other. And finally, he made that other guy so mad that he took a bottle of Yoohoo and threw it at him out his passenger window, except for one thing. He forgot he had not lowered his own passenger window, and he smashed his own passenger window, throwing it at the guy that I worked with. And my coworker laughed about this, thought it was the funniest thing he'd seen all day as this yoo-hoo and broken glass goes all over the place. And then he walks away having told this story. And the other guy who he told the story to looks at me and says, how do they always find each other? <laughs> and I think there's an important lesson in this, <laughs> right? Oh, yes. If you just say, oh, I'm sorry, man. You know, a little wave. Oh, I'm really sorry. Probably 95, 99% of the problems will just go away. What's the only gunfight that you win? The gunfight you're never in. Right. You never win a gunfight, you survive a gunfight. Hopefully you survive the gunfight. Right. You don't win a gunfight, you survive it. So if you stay out of it, if you don't get into the problem, then the problem's solved, right? So don't get into these things. So don't cut the guy off. And if you do cut the guy off, apologize. So what sort of person do you think Cut somebody off 
admits to the police, admits to the police that he motions for the other guy to pull over and fight with you. But no, I didn't show him a gun. No, I didn't show him the gun. It wasn't there. And also in another story, the stolen gun. Oh, that wasn't my gun. That's my mom's gun. I found, honestly, I found that in another story. Oh. Blamed his own mother for the stolen gun. Oh, she bought that from somebody. Well, you know. And this is North Carolina where it's (laughs) illegal to purchase a handgun without a pistol purchase permit, right? Really threw his mom under the bus on that one. Oh, no, no, no. My mom committed a felony. Yeah, I don't know if it's a felony. I'm trying to remember what what the, but yeah, seriously, threw his mother under the bus on that one. So what sort of person does this? Nice guy. Nice guy. Nice guy. Carry concealed weapon, misdemeanor class two. Drug paraphernalia, use possess, felon class I. Possession with intent to sell, controlled substance, felon class I. Maintain any place, controlled substance, felon class I. Possession of a firearm by a felon, felon class G. An assault with a deadly weapon with intent to kill, inflicting serious injury, felon class C. Just exactly the kind of guy you want to get in a road rage incident with. Right, so you think it's outside the realm of possibility that this guy was waving a gun at somebody on the side of the road no, while waving, no, I pull don't. over, pull over so I can fight you. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking maybe the other driver made the right decision to say, you know what, uh, maybe those three little digits are the right call to make. <laughs> what was your rule about being in the car? Oh, my boys, they know. Rule number one for driving. Stay in the car. All right. What's rule number two? Rule number two for driving. If the other guy gets out of the car, you're in a car. Drive away. So Nikki and I recorded her segment before Senator Cruz and that guy, whoever he was from Ohio, dropped out of the race. But the writing was on the wall. But I have a question. Between Trump and Hillary, who would Russia prefer to see as the president of the United States? Nikki, I know you hate to hear this, but it's looking more and more like Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee for president this year. We all know how you feel about the Donald's candidacy, but what do you think? Whom would Russia prefer? Ugh, groan. Yeah, the thought of the majority of the GOP being stupid enough to vote for the hairy hemorrhoid is actually making me a little nauseous. I'm thinking this is pretty much the end of the GOP. Not that I ever actually voted along party lines anyway, but still. Trump is the end of the Republican Party, and I'm pretty much thinking good riddance. Now, whom would the Russians prefer? I think the answer should be obvious, and it's not Hillary Clinton. A few assumptions ahead of my rant, okay? I'm assuming that Vladimir Putin will be around for at least five more years. And I'm assuming that he will continue getting froggy with the United States. Because, as I've said numerous times before, he doesn't like this unilateral world we're in, and he wants to build Russia into a global superpower again. Another assumption is that Russia's leadership will continue to consider NATO and the United States as Russia's primary national security threat. So why would Russia prefer that Trump become the president? It's certainly not because Trump and Putin are bros, even though they do share some authoritarian tendencies and what they know about economics could easily fit in a teaspoon. It's really because they consider Trump to be the one who would weaken the United States the most. So think about it. Trump has been on a tear about how little he thinks of the NATO alliance, the very alliance that was created to counter the kind of Soviet hegemony Putin is aiming to bring back to modern times. 
He doesn't like the fact that the United States is the biggest defense spender in NATO. He doesn't like the fact that only a handful of NATO allies meet the 2% of GDP defense spending benchmark. He's recently issued a threat that unless NATO allies begin spending 2% of GDP on defense, the United States should just go back on its Article 5 collective security guarantee commitment and let NATO nations fend for themselves. Quote, they look at the United States as weak and forgiving and feel no obligation to honor their agreements with us. In NATO, for instance, only four of 28 other member countries besides America are spending the minimum required 2% of GDP on defense, he says. And then he continues, we have spent trillions of dollars over time on planes, missiles, ships, equipment, blah, 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 building up our military to provide a strong defense for Europe and Asia. Not true, but I'll get to that in a minute. And then he issues what pretty much was an overt threat. The countries we are defending must pay for the cost of this defense. And if not, the U.S. must be prepared to let these countries fend for themselves. We have no choice. Well, yeah, we do. So number one, there's no required minimum as Trump claims. As I explained before, the 2% benchmark is just that, a benchmark. Sure, it'd be nice to see other nations spend more on their national defenses, but to claim we will arbitrarily pull out of the alliance because others don't spend as much as we do is exactly what Putin wants to hear. And number two, without the United States, the NATO alliance is much weaker and less able to stand up to the Russians. Also what Putin wants. So given the fact that Trump is already threatening to pull back from the NATO alliance, and given the fact that Russia has never stopped viewing NATO as its primary national security threat, which candidate do you think the Russians want in the White House? What about other than on security issues? Would the Russians prefer Trump over Hillary? Yeah, I think they would, mostly because to Russia, everything goes back to national security. Economic issues also are a national security issue. A better economy is an opportunity to continue building up Russia's military. And the majority of the government's revenues come from energy exports. So what would happen if we got a President Trump? Pretty much nobody knows, right? Yeah, well, true. But let's assume for a moment that Trump will actually do what he promises to do, which is ratchet up sanctions on Iran again that would probably drive up the price of oil. And the Russians would love that, since declining energy prices more than anything else are responsible for Russia's declining economy. So the price of oil would go up, which would be great for Russia. I'm also kind of thinking that Trump with his Putin and I will be great buddies and I'm going to make great deals with him shtick will probably remove the sanctions that were imposed on Russia after the Ukraine crisis began in 2014 which means that Putin will have a victory under his belt, and Trump, who seems more than happy to let NATO be threatened by the ever more frisky Russians, especially the little Baltic states whose NATO membership has been bugging Russia for years, will likely do little to stop his bloody Vladimir. And finally, I think the Russians would love to have Trump in office because they understand his personality. Underneath the bombast and the brashness, he knows exactly jack and um, excrement about NATO and about foreign policy writ large. I've talked about this before, but it bears mentioning here. They want someone arrogant and stupid in office because that's the kind of person who will make major mistakes and give Russia the edge. Remember, despite Trump's claims the United States is doing the majority of heavy lifting in Ukraine, 
aside from imposing economic sanctions, we're actually not doing much. We've sent practically no lethal weapons to Ukraine, while Putin tosses tanks, rifles, NVGs, and other military material across the border to the separatists. Remember that despite Trump's claim that we are funding so much for NATO, he's actually only talking about our own defense spending, which we would probably do regardless of whether we're in NATO or not. We spend more than other nations on defense because we are bigger than other nations. But the 3.5% or whatever it now is of GDP that we spend on our defense is ours. For common NATO projects, such as infrastructure, we contribute less than 25%. So does Trump want to reduce our defense spending? Because Putin will love that. In other words, the Russians want the most stupid and the most arrogant individual behind the wheel for this crazy near-term ride. And that, unfortunately, happens to be Trump. All right, Nikki. It was good to talk with you. I'll see you again next week. You bet. Take care. Nikki blogs at thelibertyzone.com. Plug of the week. So we're going to plug ourselves this week. Uh, okay. So you should listen to us. I do listen to us. I'm listening to us right now, in fact. Uh, well, that's not quite what I meant, really. <laughs> what did I mean, really? Actually, we think we've got like four iTunes reviews. Maybe it's five. I haven't counted in a while. We could really use some iTunes reviews. We say this at the end of every show in the ending. We actually do that live. We don't pre-record that bit, but we would really appreciate it if you would go to iTunes, if you use iTunes, and leave us a review. And to encourage reviews, we're going to give a prize away with a random draw to anybody who leaves a review. Now, I want to make clear, we're not going to check what your review is and give you a prize based on your review. Anybody who leaves a review, no matter what that review is, your name will go in a hopper and randomly your name will be picked and the winner of that drawing will receive a copy of The Law of Self-Defense, third edition, brand new, brand new. In fact, I just got my copy, I think it was yesterday, might have been the day before, book number six of the first hundred printed, signed by Andrew Branca himself. And I will make sure that it is personally autographed to you from Andrew, and you will have your very own copy. So go to iTunes, review, give us as many stars as you think we rate. Let other people know why they should listen to this podcast. Give us your honest opinion of this podcast. Everybody who gives us a review in the month of May, this closes at the last day of May. All of the reviews that go in in May will go into the random draw. I'll draw somebody in May. Whoever wins will get your very own copy of the third edition Law of Self-Defense autographed to you by Andrew himself, and I will have it shipped to you directly from Andrew. Number two, if you haven't caught it yet, we are now live on Google Play Music. So those of you who are using Android devices and have been suffering through, well, I'll download it to my computer and I'll plug it in. And then I'll transfer it over, which I used to do before I had an iDevice. Or you haven't figured out how to use a Podcatcher app. If you're using a Podcatcher app of some kind, continue to use that. It works fine. But Google Play Music apparently works pretty much the same way the iTunes does. Luke Apps, who was here as a guest a couple of episodes ago, he was using it. Says it worked great. So Google Play Music, if you take a look in the show notes, there's a link to it. Or 
just go to Google Play Music, which is a native app on your Android device. Basically, every Android device comes with it. Go to Google Play Music, do a little search for Gunblog Variety Cast, subscribe. Podcasts will magically show up. You can play them directly out of there. You can download them. And if you don't have space, you can actually stream them. Works great. And finally, I've been getting a lot of Facebook friend requests. I'm not entirely certain from where they are coming. It's your new prison buddies. You know, I think that's what it is. (laughs) From from cell block two (laughs) in the Ohio State prison. But uh, I'm getting a bunch of Facebook friend requests from people who I have no friends in common with and no way to know who people are. And as a general rule, if I don't know who you are, if I have no friends in common with you and you haven't contacted me and said, hey, this is who I am, I delete your friend request. It's not personal, but if I have no idea who you are and you haven't contacted me with a message saying, hey, I'm a fan of the Gunblog Variety Cast, that's why I'm sending you a Facebook friend request. I'm probably just going to delete your friend requests. I'm not being rude or anything. I've gotten a few really obvious phishing requests, like the super hot chick. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those. You know, you're like, yeah, okay, sure. Let me, uh, let me introduce you to my wife. Probably some fat dude in a foreign country who wants my credit card number. So Right. But in any case. So I have a pretty open friend policy on Facebook. I'm, you know, I don't have a real closed down Facebook page. Pretty much everything I post is public anyway. If you send me a Facebook friend request because you know of me from the podcast, send me a message saying, hey, Sean, I'm sending you a Facebook friend request because I heard you on the podcast. And I'll say, oh, well, okay. And then, okay, I'll, I'll accept your friend request. But if I don't get anything, I'm probably not going to I'm just going to delete the friend request. There's also a link in the show notes for my Facebook page if that is something you want to do. So to recap, iTunes reviews, we need them. Give us an iTunes review. No matter what your iTunes review is, any iTunes reviews in May will go into a hopper, randomly draw one person at the end of May. The winner of that random draw, no matter what your review was, will receive a free copy of Law of Self-Defense Third edition, which is brand spanking new, just came out in the last week, personally autographed to you by Andrew Branca. And I will buy that out of my own money. Number two, we are live on Google Play Music. If you have an Android, go to Google Play Music, search Gunblog Variety Cast, hit the little subscribe button. No more playing with cables and trying to figure out how to get it onto your phone. It'll take care of that for you. Number three, if you send me a Facebook friend request, please send me a message saying, this is who I am. I'm sending you a Facebook friend request. Then I'll accept it. Otherwise, probably not going to. Beth Alcazar has been gallivanting around the nation. Last week, she was in the Deep South at the Purple Powwow. Last week, she was in Atlanta at the USCCA Concealed Carry Expo. Now she's back at USCCA headquarters with Kelly Welke talking about the new project of the U.S. Concealed Carry Association called Women's Community. Hey, Sean, this is Beth Alcazar coming to you once again from the beautiful headquarters of USCCA right here in West Bend, Wisconsin. And I had the absolute pleasure of being part of the second annual Concealed Carry Expo not too long ago. 
where we actually launched some really cool programs and products and projects just for the ladies. So today I wanted to actually talk a little bit about one of those specifics, and I have with me my fellow co-worker and friend, Kelly Welke. Kelly, how are you today? Hi, I'm Kelly, and Beth, it's a delight to be here. We are heading up the sort of movement into the women's market here at the USCCA, so we're extremely excited to reach this completely new segment, and it's quickly growing, and we're extremely excited about the opportunities here, so it's all brand new to us. But we are working avidly to get new products out there, get new content for these women and training, covering everything. So we're looking to hear back from a lot of women as well on our different platforms and in person and get their feedback and exactly what they're looking for. So Well, and I think it's so awesome. I know I've worked with the USCCA for the last three years, a lot of it being behind the scenes and watching how things work. The quality is out there, no doubt. And of course, there are so many different materials and products and resources that we've already produced that are perfect for anybody. But what's really cool is the opportunity to really drill down and start to focus on specific needs for women. So we're not going to leave women out. Of course, they can still check out Concealed Carry Magazine and the website and the Facebook page. But tell us a little bit about the awesome thing we just launched, the women's community. That's right. We just launched it. It's brand new. Um, The USCCA has our women's community. And that's at uscca.com backslash women's community. Um, but if you go there, we're, it's about empowering you to protect what matters most. So whether it's yourself, your family, it's a place to connect with other women who have similar thoughts and ideas to you. Some of the topics on there that we're excited about, currently we have self-defense. So it's a little bit about concealed carry, but not only owning a firearm, it's different methods of protecting yourself and your family. Um, we also have home defense. Uh, training opportunities, so different tips and tactics. And I mean, Beth is on there actively as well, giving feedback there. Ask the expert as well. You can ask Beth or any of our staff anything, and you'll get response from our staff as well as you know other like-minded women out there. True stories. All of us have a story, and it's so important to share those and inspire others to you know find their own way. And that's a great place to share those 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 life stories and kind of why you're doing what you're doing. Last but not least, we do have a lifestyle section, which is probably the most active and we've had the most excitement about. It's just how to fit protection into your lifestyle. So it's more how to dress, different holster options, a little bit of everything, just how to fit concealed carry or personal protection in with your busy lifestyle. So ultimately, this becomes a community or a forum that is specifically for women. Now, we've got some men who have jumped in there and they are more than welcome to be there because they're legitimately asking questions they're concerned about, like how to get their wives or their family members involved. So we're more than happy to have them join us, but we really are dedicated and focused on the females out there and hope to grow this community and the camaraderie. Now, Kelly, how many people do we have out there currently? Currently, and like I said, it just started, but we have close to 900 people down there and it'll be close to a thousand by the end of the the weekend here. Um, So it's growing very quickly and it's a great opportunity to reach people from all over the United States. And so pretty much anyone can just jump in there. You can sign in, log in. You can ask questions, start your own topics, or of course, you are more than welcome to jump in and give your own thoughts and opinions on the things that are already out there. 
And Kelly, what are some things that we're planning to do with this in the near future? In uh, the coming weeks, we're planning on putting more content out there. So things like pictures, advice on maybe how to dress, different holster options, different carrying options, um, advice for moms specifically. That's that's a huge thing. We're also planning, you know, quizzes, just interaction, get each other talking and communicating with each other. It's an amazing opportunity to connect with other women, and that's really what we're we're looking to encourage here so well and it's kind of one of those safe spaces as well where you're not necessarily out there in the middle of Facebook world where millions of people are seeing your questions or your thoughts or your concerns this is a, a more contained environment again specifically designed for ladies to build one another up to make honest suggestions give honest feedback and and really to help one another because we've all been there. We're all in different stages in our training and hopefully we can continue to help each other learn along the way. So anything else, Kelly, anything else you're excited about with this specific community? No, I'm just so excited to see this grow and see where it takes us. Um, You guys are essential to this and help us grow. Tell us what you want to see, what you want to learn, and we'll definitely get to that. Well, and Sean, we will, of course, make sure that the information is available in show notes. We invite all the ladies out there listening to come join the USCCA's women's community. Also men, trainers, everybody else, it's a great resource that you can share as well just to get the conversation going and to keep the conversation going. And that's very important as we're encouraging ladies to be more involved and as we continue to see women just growing in our industry. So thanks a lot, Kelly, for sharing the information. It's been awesome to talk to you and work with you. Thank you so much for Beth for inviting me here. And I can't wait to see where this goes. And that's pretty much it for me for West Bend, Wisconsin, here again at the USCCA headquarters. I guess I'll talk to you guys next week. So until then, stay safe and be well-armed. You can read more from Beth at usconcealedcarry.com forward slash blog and click on pacifiers and peacemakers in the left sidebar. Fun with headlines. Off-duty deputy shoots, kills suspected Walmart shoplifter. Wow, that seems uh, a little excessive. Little, little harsh there? Yeah, wow. When did shoplifting become a death penalty offense? I, who knows? Well, probably about the same time it became a felony to rip a tag off a mattress. Dateline Houston, a Harris County Sheriff's deputy shot and killed a shoplifting suspect who was trying to flee from a Walmart Thursday night. Loss Prevention observed a group of women stuffing items inside their purses at the Walmart in the 14,000 block of the North Freeway at West Road around 10.15 p.m., according to Harris County authorities. They notified Lewis Campbell, an off-duty deputy who was working an extra job as security. Investigators said Suspect 1, Suspect 2, and Suspect 3 paid for some small items as unpaid merchandise remained concealed. Campbell confronted the women as they left the store and asked them to stop, but the women would not cooperate, Harris County deputies said. One woman allegedly struck the deputy with her purse and they all fled. Campbell chased Suspect 3 around the parking lot. She got in a car with the other suspects and two children. Campbell opened the door and commanded them to stop, but the car was placed in drive and moved forward. I think it knocked him off balance, and in fear of his life, for being ran over, he discharged his weapon at that point, said Thomas Gilliland, Harris County Sheriff's Office. Suspect 3 was struck in the neck. Gilliland said that it was clear that the deputy was law enforcement. He was clearly marked in a uniform as a Harris County deputy and identified himself as the suspects were leaving the establishment, Gilliland said. So, he didn't shoot him for shoplifting, 
He shot him from trying to run him over. Yeah. That's assault with a deadly weapon. That's not shooting somebody for shoplifting. So, and I don't know if you caught this, but I'm pretty sure she wasn't actually the driver either. So, I think we call that one felony murder. Well, the driver goes down for felony murder. Exactly. The driver and the other shoplifter. Sig promises some more answers to questions about LED shop lights. These ones are pretty interesting. In? Tech tips. Tech tips. Tech tips. You are damaging my calm. Tech tips. With Silicon Graybeard. So, hey, Sig, what do you got for me this week? Well, this week, we're going to continue responding to listener John from Philly, who emailed with some questions about LED lights. In particular, we start with a simple question. Are LEDs dimmable? How? Do they flicker them on and off? Well, the dimmer circuits that are used with incandescent light bulbs and that lots of people have in their houses are not compatible with all LEDs. But since dimmers are popular, LED bulb makers have developed bulbs that are dimmable. They say so on the boxes or in the online description. Without going into a description of how dimmers work and the circuit details, it's kind of rough to answer why. But what you hint at in your question is true for some LED flashlights and small lights. If you were to start with a clean sheet of paper to design an LED dimmer, you'd generally use an approach called pulse width modulation. So as the name implies, in a time period, like during a second, they'll pulse the LED on and it'll be longer or shorter amounts of time. It's done because LEDs are most efficient at a certain current. So they pulse that current on and off. The longer the on time and the shorter the off time, in any time period, the brighter the LED. Now, this isn't exactly the same as pulsing it completely on and off. The number of pulses always stays the same, but the amount of time the pulse is on varies. The ratio of the time on to the time off is really what's being controlled. This is one of those things that's harder to describe than to draw pictures, but let me try. If you want it to flicker an LED 100 times a second, the ratio of on time to off time could be one to one which means it would be on and off half the time. Each pulse would be 5 milliseconds long. One on-off period would be 10 milliseconds, so the time from one pulse turning on to the next pulse turning on would be 10 milliseconds. That's 100 cycles per second, uh, the unit of that is hertz. You could also put out very short pulses, say one millisecond long instead of five. To keep the period the same, the time off extends out to nine milliseconds. The frequencies are all the same. The time from the start of one pulse to the start of the next one is still 10 milliseconds, and the frequency is still 100 hertz. The difference is that the LED would put out less light that way and appear dimmer. So instead of being on 50% of the time, it would be on 10%. Likewise, you could leave it on for 9 milliseconds and off for 1. Again, the frequency is still 100 hertz, but the LED would appear brighter because it's on 90% of the time. Now, 100 hertz is just a number I pulled out of the air for illustration. The exact number they choose to use depends on the designers. But let's say they do use 100 hertz. There's a name for a light that flashes 100 times per second, a strobe light. If you've ever played around in a strobe light, they can make moving things look pretty strange. And let me tell you, hundreds of years ago, when I was a teenager, we had them in dance clubs. Where I'm going here is that if you have an LED that's strobing on and off to control brightness, you may not want to be using it in a shop with fans or rotating machinery. If everything is just right, or just wrong, depending on how you look at it, 
it can make a fan or something dangerous look like it's not moving at all, moving slowly or moving backwards. You don't want to put your fingers into a cutting bit or moving machinery because its motion was frozen by the strobe light. For practical reasons, the pulses should be at a higher frequency than on 100 hertz, but we have no control over that as consumers of LED lighting products. Just be aware that things may not look the way they really are when you're using a new LED light. Finally, John asked about how to measure the light levels around the house. How does he know which lights to buy? Let's look at measuring the light in a place and figuring out how to make it what you want. The first thing is a way to measure the light. Thankfully, that's easier today than it used to be for most people. Most people have a smartphone, better described as a powerful computer with a camera and other sensors built into it. Both the iOS and Android universes have light meter apps available. I actually bought, for a whole $2, one of those apps for my old iPhone 5 to prepare for the show. The one I bought is called, appropriately enough, Light Meter. I don't have an Android device, but I see a similar program in the Google Play Store. I'll link to both in the show notes. Unfortunately, it's units confusion time again. The proper unit for how much light falls on something is a lux, and the light meter apps measure the amount of light at the phone's camera and report the result in lux. The bulbs, as we talked about last week, are rated in lumens. A lux is a lumen per square meter. Confusing enough? There are lux to lumen conversion calculators if you want, but here's a way I think of using it. Find an area with lighting you like. Read the light level there. Look at what lights you have. For example, while I'm writing this, I'm sitting under a light fixture with four 800 lumen LED bulbs. That's 3,200 lumens at the source. My light meter tells me I have about 300 lux here on my keyboard. If you don't like the lighting you have, try to figure out how many lights you need to add. Let's say there's a spot in my shop where the light just doesn't feel good enough. I put my meter there and it reads 100 lux. That means I want about three times the amount of light there. The nearest light fixture is two T8 fluorescent bulbs with 3,000 lumens 12 feet away, straight line to the ceiling. To get three times the light, I'd need three times as many bulbs, six bulbs. Well, that ain't happening. I can't get six bulbs in that fixture. But I can put something closer. Here's a trick. Light falls off as one over the distance squared. So if it's half the distance away, it's four times brighter. This is where your small shop lights come in. An 800 lumen bulb two feet away would be the same as 1,600 lumens four feet away and 3,200 lumens eight feet away. I know this is a number and unit salad. Lots of numbers jumbled around, jumping back and forth between lumens and lux, distances and brightnesses. There are online calculators to help with the unit conversions and lots of folks trying to sell solutions. So it shouldn't be too hard to figure out how much light you'd like. All right, Sig, it was good to talk with you. I'll see you again next week. See you again next week. You can read more from Silicon Graybeard at thesilicongraybeard.blogspot.com. That's Graybeard spelled G-R-A-Y-B-E-A-R-D. Or email questions directly to sigraybeard, one word, at gmail.com. You know, it sounds really stupid when Sig says that it's dangerous when strobing lights make rotating equipment look stopped, but he's right. The Navy uses a strobe light as a timing light to set the governor on the ship's service turbine generator. You know, like an actual like timing light, old school, mm -hmm. right? right? Right, right. There's a lot of people who've never seen this done before on a car when you time the engine. I don't even know if they even do this anymore with electronic ignitions. No, they don't. 
but with the old distributor, they used to time engines. They use a strobe light, and what it does is you put a mark on the engine, and, and you use the strobing light, and then you use that light to determine how fast the engine's turning, right? Well, you do the same thing with the generator. It's turning at like 1,800 RPM, right? So they got this strobe light. They have to actually set a person there to keep people from sticking their hands into the stopped shaft, right? Oh, yeah. Because when you look at it, it's not moving. Right. It. I swear to you that they got the strobe light that it's flashing on the shaft and it suddenly does that thing where you watch, you've ever watched on TV, you've got the helicopter that's flying and then like the rotors look like they stop and they look like they go backwards. That stroboscopic effect, it does that exact thing. And I swear this is true. I don't care who you are, you will reach for it. Every single one of us did it. They actually had to set a watch so that the person would slap your hands when you automatically reached for it. And they warn you beforehand, don't reach for it. And they set somebody to turn his back on it and watch you. So when you reach for it, he can slap you and say, don't do that. And then you all went, oh my goodness, what the heck was I doing? I was going to reach into something that's turning at like 1800 RPM and rip your freaking hands off. So be very careful with this. Don't play with it. It'll mess with your brain, and then you'll get your hands ripped off. Ain't nobody got time for that. That's right. The J-Block. So, Adam, John and Philly commented on the last podcast. He asked about the Jeep. He says, what happened about that ball joint removal replacement thingy you were doing? You mentioned last week that your axles are now bleeding, but you never said anything at all about fixing the ball joints. You do actually have a front end on your car now, right? As of about six hours ago, yes. Sort of. So you're driving around without a front end? Well, no, I didn't drive around with a front end, but... You didn't drive around with a front end? I don't know. I got about 20 minutes of sleep last night. I I can't really be held responsible for, you know, coherent speech on a podcast. So what happened was I did the passenger side ball joints, and then I busted the axle seal when I reinserted the axle shaft after doing those passenger side ball joints. The seal's 18 years old. It costs $3, so it's actually not really a surprise that I killed it on my first go-round, but I thought that I had inserted that shaft properly. The problem is that when you break that seal, you have to remove the wheels, the brakes, the wheel hubs, and the axle shafts on both sides, and then the differential cover and drain all that diff fluid out, and if you've ever smelled burned gear oil, it's not pleasant, and it reeks. And then you have to get the diff carrier out of the differential. Uh, the diff carrier is where your gears are. In a, and this is on the front axle of a four-wheel drive vehicle. So there's gears in there. Right. I, I was aware of that. Right. The rest of it all sounds like Greek filtered through hieroglyphics, <laughs> but I was aware there was gears up front somewhere. Right. So after that, then you can remove and replace the seals. As I had previously said, I, I did the passenger side ball joints, but that took like 34 hours as opposed to like the two hours it was supposed to take because I had some problems and actually broke some tools trying to get those ball joints out. But I had planned on doing the driver's side actually in a couple of weeks, but obviously that got accelerated. Luckily, I have a friend of mine who loaned me his extra car while I was working on all this. So I wasn't, you know, stranded. What, he give you like a 92 Civic or something? Actually, he's a really good friend. Uh, He gave me an MR2 Spider convertible. That's a 2004, I think. Things like driving a go-kart. 
So you've actually got no incentive at all to fix your Jeep. Well, that shush you. Anyway, since I was going to have to tear down the entire front axle anyway, I decided to go ahead and do the driver's side ball joints, the axle shaft U-joints, and the wheel bearings. The first time I did the passenger side ball joints, I opted not to replace the wheel bearings. And then when I went to actually go do it, I realized that they actually were bad and needed to be done. And that's one of those things where I would have to pull out and reinsert the axle shaft if I was changing the wheel bearings. And I don't want to break this $3 seal again. (laughs) So I did all of that. And all of that went really well because I learned a lot from doing the passenger side. For example, if you use a blowtorch and a hammer, the ball joints come out easier. You know, that always seemed like that would be like a no-brainer. If you use a blowtorch and a hammer, everything seems like it would go smoother. Yes. Your whole life would be so much easier (laughs) if you just use a blowtorch and hammer on basically everything. Right. The other thing I learned was that you need the $250 ball joint kit from the parts store and not the $80 one. And by that, I mean, you can go to your parts store, your AutoZone, Advance Auto, O'Reilly's or whatever, and you can get a ball joint replacement kit and they will loan you one. They'll loan you a really cheap one. Or they've got a really big, heavy, expensive one in the back. And that's the one that you actually need. There's an adapter in there that's specifically for the Dana 30, which is the front axle that I have. And that was why it took me so long to do it the first time, because I didn't have that particular tool. And then the last thing that I learned was that if you put the new ball joints in the freezer overnight, they go in a lot easier, because they're smaller. Okay. Yeah, they went, they went right in. It was, uh, it was pretty awesome. So last Saturday, I had done almost everything. I started having that problem on Tuesday, and then I worked on it a little bit on Wednesday and a little bit on Thursday. Friday, we had the podcast. And so Saturday, uh, I finally got to work on it, and I got almost everything except removing the carrier from the differential housing, because that's a little bit terrifying. See, if you take it out wrong and you mess up the shims, you won't know it until you hit about 60 miles an hour. And to use a colorful phrase that I really enjoy that I heard on the Squirrel Report and other places that JG talks, you introduce your axles insides to the outside. Ooh, yeah, that doesn't sound like it would be fun. No, especially since that's right next to your oil pan, and it could, you know, introduce your oil to the outside, and then you need a new engine very quickly. So I watched a ton of YouTube videos, read a bunch of forum posts, lots and lots of research, and the best methods to get that carrier out. So it just popped right out then, right? And no. I spent all day Saturday and all day Sunday, several trips to the store to get one more tool, uh, and I had moved the differential carrier about a sixteenth of an inch. At that point, I have been without my car for five days. I'm driving this little two-seater, so my wife has to shuttle the kids all over the place. I cannot take the kids. Plus, the MR2 is a five-speed, and my wife doesn't know how to drive stick, so she can't take the convertible and me take the kids. And you can't teach her how to drive a stick? I am not going to teach her to drive a stick in somebody else's car. So I decided to give up and just take it to a shop. But first, Cottontail from Naxja, that'd be the North American XJ Association, offered to come by and help. It's not supposed to be that hard, and he'd done it tons of times before. So he came over and it popped right out, right? No, not at all. Um, He came over with a crowbar, and he'd, you know, done it a whole bunch of times, and he's like, yeah, this isn't moving. And I could actually see the differential housing flexing under the weight of his pry bar, where it just wasn't moving at all. And that's really terrifying when you're sitting underneath a Jeep that's on jack stands, and the thing that's on the jack stands is moving. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I could see that'd be a problem. Yeah. 
So at this point, he goes, hey, why don't you just take it to this, this shop that's half a mile down the street? They've done some work for me before. Just have them uh, replace this $3 seal. So, okay. So the next day, I go to put everything back together. And those hubs that I ordered, brand new, they were the wrong size. So I had to wait another two days to get the replacements. But this afternoon, roughly 10 days later, I finally got it all put back together and drove it to the shop that's within walking distance of the house. And then I walked home. Wait, I thought you didn't pay people thousands of dollars to work on your old cars. Did you just get that frustrated? I mean, how much is this going to cost? So I did all the hard work of busting up the 18 years of rust and replacing a lot of the stuff that needs replacing. I don't know how much exactly this is going to cost me, but no more than it would cost me to pull an axle from the junkyard and swap it, which is basically where I was at. So you've gotten the cost down to the point where it's about the same amount for them to do it as it is for you to do it? Yes, but it's going to take them probably two or three days, and it would take me two or three weeks to do all that. Oh, all right. Well, that's good. But the good news is I didn't bleed a single time. Hi, my name's Adam from Guns Cars Tech Blog. My cars are old. My guns are considerably newer. (sighs) You know what happened when my car needed to go into the shop? Yes, the person who actually owns your car is paying for it to get in the shop. And they rented me another car. Right. Which happens to be a four-wheel drive. Monstrosity. Crew cab F-150. So I would just just like to, (laughs) I would like to let you know that I have been driving this lifted Jeep Cherokee for a couple of years now. And the MR2, the highest point of the MR2 is below my belly button. (laughs) When I pull up next to your Toyota Camry hybrid, I can see the undersides of the door handles. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. You could probably drive underneath the truck I'm driving. That's entirely possible. Put the top down. Oh, yeah. 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 And now a word from our sponsor. You know what will happen. If you ever have to defend yourself, you're going to end up in handcuffs. Are you trained to win the fight after the fight? Sure, you can draw, aim, and put two in the ten ring, but have you learned your legal self-defense? Do you know the law? Go to lawofselfdefense.com forward slash variety to sign up for your legal self-defense class. Each class is tailored to the laws in your state. Attorney Andrew Branca will teach you the law, not just what the law says, but what the judge's legal opinions say, what the jury instructions say. Sure, you could risk spending the rest of your life in prison because you followed the advice of some gun store counter jockey, or you could spend the day with the man who literally wrote the book on the law of self-defense. Carry a gun so you're hard to kill. Know the law so you're hard to convict. Go to lawofselfdefense.com forward slash variety to sign up for a legal self-defense class in your state. And make sure to use discount code variety at checkout to receive 10% off. So where can you take a live, in-person, state-specific law of self-defense seminar? August 7th at Triangle Shooting Academy in Raleigh, North Carolina. August 13th at Threat Dynamics in Sherwood, Oregon. August 20th at the Nashville Armory in Nashville, Tennessee. September 10th at CMP Talladega Marksmanship Park, Talladega, Alabama. October 1st at the Hampton Inn in Ben Salem, Pennsylvania. On October 15th at the West Greenway Bible Church in Glendale, Arizona. And October 16th at the Butterfield Shooting Range in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Check lawofselfdefense.com for which states these classes cover and to see when more classes are offered. Or email him and ask him to teach a class in your area. But most importantly, when you sign up, make sure to use the discount code VARIETY at checkout to save 10%.
This podcast runs on your donations. Go to gunblogvarietycast.com and click on the donate or subscribe button in the right sidebar. You can make a one-time donation of any amount or subscribe for as little as $2 a month. That doesn't sound like much, but we pay our server costs monthly. A little help from you is a big help to us. We hear Obama and Hillary Clinton say we should adopt the Australian model. And they aren't talking about me getting to take Elle McPherson home. Weird caught an hour-long television program about guns from an Australian TV station. You gotta hear this to believe it. In This This Week week in Anti-Gun Nuttery. Well, hey, Weird, what do you got for me this week? One of the fun anti-gun code phrases we hear out of politicians is the Australian model. On the 28th of April, 1996, an insane person went on a shooting spree in the Tasmanian town of Port Arthur with an AR-15. The aftermath of this shooting was a massive ban on all semi-auto and pump-action rifles and shotguns. There was a lot of propaganda about the success of this law, but overall the results were minimal, and like most places with blanket bans, violent crime actually increased. Check out the show notes for John Lott's in-depth analysis of Australia's violent crime around the ban. One thing to keep in mind when people compare raw numbers of gun deaths between the U.S. and Australia is Australia has less than 7.5% of our population. There are more people living in Texas than in all of Australia. Still, another damning fact about the gun ban is how the gun banners feel about it 20 years later. I wanted to ask you, though, John Howard, in in the 20 years since Port Arthur, we haven't had any mass shootings since that gun buyback and since the agreement. But do you think that guns still pose a significant threat to the community now? Oh, yes. In the hands of criminals, yes. Realistically, you can't ban all... You're not going to be able to ban all handguns, but if people seek to criticise the laws we brought in by reference to the number of handguns there are in the community, that's an argument for further restricting handguns. It's not an argument for unwinding the prohibition on automatic and semi-automatic weapons. But the great argument in favour of what we did 20 years ago is that we haven't had these mass shootings and there has been... A very, there was a very significant fall in the youth suicide rate, particularly amongst young men in many rural areas of Australia. So this is John Howard, the Prime Minister of Australia at the time of the shooting. They are very proud of the lack of mass shootings. But so is New Zealand next door, and they didn't need to ban any guns. In the show notes, I've included a list of massacres in Australia, and there have been several attacks with massive body counts. The fact that the killer, in many cases, burned their victims to death in an arson attack rather than use bullets doesn't give me the warm fuzzies. But guns! But there have been shootings, as well as serious violent crime. And the idea that guns cause suicide is both laughable as well as refuted on many occasions here. And of course, he wants more gun control. Next up is the son of a police officer murdered by a 15-year-old career criminal with a pistol. He clearly wants more to be done. My concern is the accessibility of guns to, to criminals and whether or not our laws are actually strong enough um, at targeting um, the, the prevalence of guns or um, weapons that are, that are being able to access by, um, by criminals. So my, my question for maybe for Mr Howard is, um, are our gun laws adequate in protecting us? Are we as safe as we think we are? And what do we need to do to 
make our society safer? Do we need another amnesty to remove guns and weapons from society? That's a good idea. Okay. Well, almost certainly you know, the answer to that question is no. We are, the laws are not adequate. And I, I, I would have thought that everybody would agree that if 15-year-olds can get hold of weapons like that, there is something wrong with, with the laws. Accessibility of guns to criminals? As in criminals who refuse to follow the law completely? But again, anti-gunners always see the solution to laws being broken as more laws. The antis there don't operate too differently than ours. The problem with this whole question is that earlier, a member of the New South Wales Parliament from the Hunters and Shooters Party, a pro-gun party, said where the gun came from. I don't know how much the police have told you, but I guess being a member of Parliament, I get to find out things. The firearm that killed your father was a 38 Smith & Wesson. It's a revolver. Mm -hmm. It used to be the old police mm -hmm. firearms. It had never been registered in, in, in Australia. The firearm that that idiot... Um, uh, so-called terrorist, whatever you want to call mm -hmm. him, uh, used in, um, in the cafe was also uh, a firearm that had never been registered. So how can you demand more controls on gun owners in a country which already has every legal gun owner and every legal gun registered? The Hunters and Shooters Party is sort of what you might imagine would happen if the Australian version of the NRA decided to field their own political candidates. You should watch the video to see him in action and to see how the rest of the people treat this very decent person. Back to the former Prime Minister John Howard talking about the political realities of gun control. My difficulty was that I knew, given the nature of political decision making, I knew that unless the opportunity, the, the decision was implemented immediately, it would, it would wither away. That's what happens. And you say, right, I will sit down and have a discussion about it. And I felt from the very beginning that unless the government stood by our, I suppose, initial instinctive reaction to ban these weapons, I knew that if we engaged in some kind of generalised discussion, you would end up with compromise. You would end up with um, a situation where some of the state governments would resist it. Act fast while emotions are hot and facts are still uncertain. And never cross the political aisle or compromise. We all know that these laws will never work as advertised. Because of this, and because any deliberate process would give cooler heads a chance to bring up facts, logic, and common sense, they were simply rammed down the throats of the Australian people. Looking back on that decision and the mm. way you described how you took it, are there lessons for other Prime Ministers about acting fast when, they, when well, they're elected? Well, I, I, I don't set myself up as a lecturer. It's presumptuous of me to, to give generalised advice to other Prime Ministers. I can only relate how I behaved at the time. And I knew that if I didn't do what I did and do it fairly quickly and decisively, the moment would be gone. The moment would be gone. That's where he gives away the game. Good laws can be passed with simple campaigning and education. Teach people the facts. Win them to your side. Convince them that you are correct. Not the gun grabbers. They need blood and fear and people acting in the grips of emotion. But they need to act fast so they can get it done before the people come to their senses. Anti-gunners never have popular support. They only have emotional people reacting to a tragic event in a way that they wouldn't otherwise. It was very difficult. Sometimes in a situation like that, you don't have any alternative but to, to, to bring in a blanket law that, that, that catches the, 
uh, the, the, uh, the innocent and the responsible as well as the venal. And uh, you, you have to be willing to do that. Of course, we just heard how the criminals in Australia, like the United States, don't follow the law. So really, he's just admitting that the gun law only punished the innocent. Last, let's not confuse the motives of the antis. Tighter gun laws had been on your radar already as opposition leader, hadn't they? Yes, not. I, I don't want to overemphasise that. I, I, before I became Prime Minister, I made a series of speeches called about different aspects of policy, and one of them I talked about, about guns, and I said that I didn't want Australia to go down the American path. And, uh, you know, a lot of things about America I deeply admire, but their gun culture is something I loathe. But it was right to say I was predisposed to do something if the circumstances arose. I think that would be the, that would be the, the honest way of explaining it. Like the antis before him and after him, He's simply a blood dancer. He hated guns when he first took office. He loathed them, as he said. And this massacre didn't change his opinion at all. It just gave him an emotional smokescreen to pass what he otherwise would have had no chance of passing in the first place. Take this segment as a cautionary tale. Even the pro-gunners on the show were fairly anti-gun, admitting the AR-15 had no purpose and giving the only legitimate reason for owning a semi-auto firearm is farmers protecting their stock and crops and sports shooters. You can argue successfully against all of those things. Get another hobby, buy meat at the grocery store, and farmers get insurance or raise prices to compensate for pests and predation. You can't argue with self-defense, because police only catch criminals after they commit a crime. If you don't want a violent crime to occur, you need to rely on yourself, and the best tool for that job is ultimately a firearm. All right, Weird. It was good to talk with you. I'll see you again next week. See you next week, Sean. In addition to appearing here, Weird is a regular host on Squirrel Report and blogs at weirdworld.com. That's W-E-E-R-D world.com. Stuff that grinds my gears. Adam, why don't you go first this week? Oh my gosh, people on Craigslist. Ugh. So I'm trying to buy my wife another car. Still? Yes. And today, I have talked to three different people about their cars. The first one... Oh, it's got 125,000 miles on it. Oh, really? It does? Okay, cool. What's the vehicle identification number? Oh, well, if it's got 125,000 miles on it, then how did 14 months ago it have 260,000 miles on it? Uh, well, the odometer says it's got 126,000. Yeah, okay, whatever. Next. So then, oh, yeah, clear title. Well, clear title apparently to this guy doesn't include the fact that it was totaled in 2008 sent to a junkyard and then salvaged because it doesn't say salvage on the title that he has but that doesn't change the fact that it ran into a telephone pole and all the airbags went off (laughs) and then the last guy that i talked to he tells me that he's not a dealer but the car has not been registered in tennessee and it was the last thing on carfax was it being sold at auction with 30,000 miles more than what he's advertising uh, about three weeks ago. So, no, just people. Like, come on. I feel really bad kind of for the first guy because I don't think that he knew that his car had almost 300,000 miles on it when he bought it. Wow. Yeah, but here's the thing about Carfax. And I've got some stuff on my website about how to buy a car. Carfax should never make you feel good about buying a car. 
You should already have a good feeling before you run a Carfax. Carfax tells you the, the reasons why you shouldn't buy a car. All three of these, like I was going to buy them. Yeah, I'm going to buy this car. And then, oh, look, Carfax. Oh, no. No, I'm not. So how about you, Sean? The Never Trump crowd. I am so tired of what I can only describe as the virtue signaling that I am hearing all over Facebook, all over basically every channel of information there is. I'll never vote for Trump because he's going to lose and he's a horrible person and I don't care if Hillary wins, basically. Um, seriously? Seriously? You are actually telling me that it's totally okay with you that President Hillary Clinton is going to, it's not a if she gets a Supreme Court nominee. It's not if she gets to nominate the Supreme Court justice who will have the vote to overturn Heller. It's the minute she steps into office, she gets it. And how many of the other justices on the Supreme Court are so old that they're dusty at this point? Seven of them. (laughs) There are people that are starting to look like they were at the original Jurassic Park. Like... Like in the Jurassic era? Yeah. We're talking the end of the Constitution. Because when you get nine robed dictators who can find whatever meaning that they want in the Constitution then the Constitution is meaningless. When it means whatever they say it means, then it means nothing. And when they can find anything they want in the umbras and penumbras and emanations, but they can't read the plain language, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, when five people out of nine could say, well, you know, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed kind of sort of sounds like maybe, oh, you know, Maybe we should let a guy keep a operating revolver in his house. And the other four are like, nah, I don't think we could go that far. Right. And one of those five is dead. And we're going to let Hillary nominate a person to take that place. There is no possible circumstance where Donald Trump could be worse. He could light the entire town on fire. He could burn the whole country to the ground and could not be worse than what Hillary will do to this place. But oh no, you've got to run around and tell all your friends that you're not one of those people. You won't vote for Trump. You're better than that. And you know what's even worse than that? Even worse than the just strategic stupidity of this, of handing the victory to Hillary Clinton, is the just arrogant stupidity of speaking to your fellow Americans like that. There are millions of people who decided that that was their best choice. And this is not a case of, well, the establishment, they manipulated the process and they put forth their person and there was no way we could get the kind of conservative we wanted. You know, you could have played that game and said that about Romney. You could have said that about McCain. Could have said that about George W. Bush, H. W. Bush. Dole, pretty much everybody all the way back, not including Reagan, because Reagan had to fight his way through those idiots. But you can't possibly say that about Trump. So this was a person who got his position because enough people decided that that's who they wanted. So 
when you're directing this hatred towards him, you're directing it at millions of your fellow Americans. Real nice. You may not like what he stands for. Fine. But maybe you ought to stop being such big jerks to your fellow Americans. At the very least, you ought to consider that Heller was a 5-4 decision. And it's going to go 5-4 the other way. And as soon as the next person of that 5 dies or retires, it's going to go 6-3 and then 7-2. And for the rest of your life, every single decision that you might want is going to go the other way. And for your life and for the life of your children and probably for the life of your children's children. Just think about that. Now, just a quick programming note. There probably will not be a show next week. I'll be attending a two-day pistol class, so look forward to a review of that class a week after that. Adam and I will be back on Sunday, the 22nd? Yes, May 22nd. That'll be the Sunday of the NRA show, where Adam and I will hold our NRA pity party, where this year we don't get to go. Well, yeah. We got to go last time, so that was cool. Well, that's our show for the week. Thanks again to Rob Allen for our music. And Firearms Policy Coalition for their support. And thank you for listening to the Gun Blog Variety Cast. Constructive criticism can be sent to Sean at seansorrentino.com. And hate mail to wizardpc at gunscarstech.com. If you're not already subscribed, subscribe in iTunes for all you Apple users. Or in Google Play Music if you're an Android user. And make sure to help us grow by sharing this podcast with your friends. Show notes can be found at gunblogvarietycast.com forward slash episode 90. This is a URS production.